Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like rottenness, fun and friends. Oh, I love that. And we're going to do something on the history of fun uh, in mm. future weeks, aren't we? And we have done friends, haven't we? If anyone wants and to go check that out. we have done friends <laughs> and I want to do rottenness. Uh, people who are rotten to the core. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of playing chicken is in fact all about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Or that the history of sharing is in fact all about Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto? And those are two of our homeschooling history podcasts that we did in the last lockdown, way, way back before the summer of 2020. The man not sitting opposite me because we are politely social distancing, he will nevertheless help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James the Daybell. James the Daybell. Hello, Sam the Willis. And of course, I've just name dropped him, but the man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing during lockdown. But who is helping me ably pilot this episode. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis, off of the telly. Hello, everyone. Uh, So uh, this is another of our special homeschooling series for both children and adults. We've been enjoying it hugely, and I think we'll probably carry on forever, James. It's so much fun. Um, What we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history, and then we prove that not only does it have a history, but also that it's very, very important. Uh, Today's one we've been uh, kind of gearing up to do for ages, and I'm quite excited about it. We're doing the history of sludge, which, of course, is all about the trenches and the First World War. But before we reveal uh, the connection there, uh, we need to think about brainstorming how else we might think about the history of sludge. James, you know what first sprang to mind? Um, and that was, I saw an anniversary of this um, not so long ago, and that's the anniversary uh, from the 21st of October in 1966 of the Aberfan disaster, which was um, like a catastrophic collapse of a, a colliery spoil tip. So when people uh, do their mining and they put all the stuff they don't need on it into a huge pile, it becomes like a mountain. And this mountain of sludge and slurry had been put on, on a mountain slope above the Welsh village of Aberfan on top of a natural spring. And what happened is that a very heavy period of rain led to a build-up of water um, and it, it caused this this huge mountain of sludge to, to slide downhill and it engulfed a junior school and other buildings. 116 children and 28 adults died in that disaster. So there's a very sad example of the history of sludge for you, James. Very sad uh, indeed. Uh, if you see uh, series two of The Crown, uh, you can see how they represent that uh, on, on television. Uh, deeply uh, upsetting. Um, when I was thinking about sludge, the first, one of the first things I did was to go and ask my nine-year-old daughter uh, about sludge. Uh, <laughs> the wisdom has, of youth, James. <laughs> who, well, she has watched the entire back catalogue of Horrible Histories twice and is now so well-versed in the oddities of history uh, that she is my oracle that I always go to. And when I said to her, what, what do you think of when you think about the history of sludge or mud? Uh, she said, Daddy, Saxon houses... Uh, and then she was she was quite right. It's the the sludge or the mud that's used to pack on the outside of the frames of of, of houses to keep them secure. But also, I was thinking uh, sludge. 
makes me think about uh, travel conditions pre the turnpike system. Oh, that's very um, good. Well done. Um, when we did the we did the history of turnpikes uh, in the last lockdown, so look Dressing out up, for that. I think we did yeah. Dressing up. Yes, uh, mm. but it was just about the terrible road conditions at the time and the mud and the potholes and have a look out for Celia Fines, the gentleman Celia Fines travel diary. She's traveling around England in the late 17th century and there are all sorts of wonderful quotes there of the appalling travel conditions that she came across. She writes, uh, the country hereabout is so full of more or quagmires and precipices that one that is a stranger cannot travel without a guide and some of them are put to a loss sometimes. And she mentions elsewhere all these sort of quagmires and, and there's one account where somebody falls off a horse into a quagmire and is absolutely... You know, soaked. But it also makes me think of the history of Glastonbury Festival. Uh, those <laughs> of you who've been to Glastonbury Festival, um, there, there was a wonderful article that I found, uh, which which recounted all of the recent Glastonbury festivals that were washed out with rain and mud, and it, it's and it's absolutely appalling. Nineteen eighty two. Uh, Glastonbury was very damp and slippery, and it was a a huge mud bath. Uh, and and if you have a look, 1990 was also there was a deluge of rain, and again there's mud. And then if we go through to 1997, was one of the muddiest years of all time, and began with you know torrential rain even before the festivals began. If you Google this and go and have a look, literally people are camped out in a field for days and they are just caked head to foot in mud um, <laughs> I, I and there, is, there are in fact mud festivals you know where, uh. where people actually go and and properly get muddy on purpose <laughs> as part of festivities I was at, at one of those Glastonbury's uh, I, can't, I can't remember which one now but what you don't get from all of the pictures and the TV footage of the mud is is what it smelt like. The smell oh, of the bet. mud was indescribable. Um, oh, finally, I, I thought about mudlarkers. Uh, there some recent books about mudlarking. This is the business of um, spending your time pootling around on the banks of any river, I suppose. But particularly it happens on the Thames, looking for historical objects, objects and artefacts. Um, I would urge you to do it. It's tremendous fun. I always spend a bit of time on the shore of the Thames if I'm in London. I've never found anything yet, but I'm determined to. Uh, it's actually got a, a decent history of its own. The Victorians, um, you've got uh, kids, youngsters aged between 8 and 15, um, who are essentially scavenging for a living uh, on the banks of the Thames in the, in the 18th and the 19th centuries. Um, it's a pretty grim, pretty grim job, but they would have found some wonderful things. And now it's a bit more civilised. And one of the best things I've ever come across, which was discovered by a mudlarker in the mud of the Thames, is a little hand cannon. So it's it's like a very early, very early, I'm talking like the 1300s, um, form of gun. And it was, they thought it was a ship's whistle until someone took it to the to Royal Armouries at Leeds and said, no, that's a hand cannon. That's what you'd attach to the end of a stick and fire a, 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 a small cannonball, I suppose, about the size of a plum um, out of it. Uh, anyway, amazing thing. Um, discovered in the mud of the River Thames 
on the shore there just by the Tower of London. So there you are. Those are the different ways we can think about mud or just some of them. James, it makes me think we should do a proper episode on the history of mud. There's so much we could do. I think we absolutely should, Sam. Um, But today we are going to be talking about mud in particular relation to the First World War and to the trenches. And I'm going to start with a poem written by Mary Borden. She was born in 1886. She died in 68, had a very long and full life there. Um, She was an American British novelist and a poet. And this is her poem, um, At the Somme, The Song of the Mud, from 1917. This is the song of the mud, the pale yellow glistening mud that covers the hills like satin, the grey gleaming silvery mud that spread like enamel over the valleys, the frothing, squirting, spurting liquid mud that gurgles along the road beds, the thick elastic mud that is kneaded and pounded and squeezed under the hooves of the horses, the invincible, inexhaustible mud of the war zone. This is the song of the mud, the uniform of the poilu. His coat is of mud, his great dragging, flapping coat that is too big for him and too heavy. His coat that once was blue and now is grey and stiff with the mud that cakes to it. This is the mud that clothes him. His trousers and boots are of mud and his skin is of mud and there's mud in his beard. His head is crowned with a helmet of mud. He wears it well. He wears it as a king, wears the ermine that bores him. He has introduced the sheik of mud. This is the song of the mud that wriggles its way into battle. The impertinent, the intrusive, the ubiquitous, the unwelcome. The slimy inveterate nuisance that fills the trenches, that mixes in with the food of the soldiers, that spoils the working of motors and crawls into their secret parts, that spreads itself over the guns, that sucks the guns down and holds them fast in its slimy, voluminous lips, that has no respect for destruction and muzzles the bursting shells and slowly, softly, easily soaks up the fire, the noise, Soaks up the energy and the courage, soaks up the power of armies, soaks up the battle, just soaks it up and thus stops it. This is the hymn of mud, the obscene, the filthy, the putrid, the vast liquid grave of our armies. It has drowned our men. Its monstrous distended belly reeks with the undigested dead. Our men have gone down into it, sinking slowly and struggling and slowly disappearing. Our fine men, our brave, strong young men. Our glowing, red, shouting, brawny men, slowly, inch by inch, they have gone down into it, into its darkness, its thickness, its silence. Slowly, irresistibly, it drew them down, sucked them down, and they were drowned in thick, bitter, heaving mud. Now it hides them, oh, so many of them. Under its smooth, glistening surface, it is hiding them blandly. There is not a trace of them, there is no mark where they went down. The mute, enormous mouth of the mud has closed over them. This is the song of the mud, the beautiful, glistening, golden mud that covers the hills like satin. The mysterious, gleaming, silvery mud that is spread like enamel over the valleys. Mud, the disguise of the war zone. Mud, the mantle of battles. Mud, the smooth, fluid grave of our soldiers. This is the song of the mud. That's amazing. An incredible poem, Sam. Absolutely incredible. Now, I just want to gloss uh, one of the terms that you used there, the poilu. Uh, I looked this up and it is informal for an infantry soldier in the French army. 
So we've got this as our as our hook, our way of thinking about trenches uh, during the First World War. We've got this brilliant depiction here of the the sort of mud that sort of is everywhere is is, is seen as sort of putrid um, and and all encompassing, all enveloping. But what I want to do now, before we get into actually looking at trench warfare, is I want to talk a little bit about why. Uh, the Germans and the Allied powers had to build trenches, why they had to dig trenches and why we get that sort of form of trench warfare on the Western Front. And this is all because of the failure of the Schlieffen Plan. Now, what happened in August 1914 was that the German army invaded Belgium and France and French, Belgian and British troops uh, opposed them. Um, and what happened was they, instead of going across the French border, what they wanted to do was to come, the German army wanted to come through a sort of lightning strike through Belgium and then basically come in that way rather than fighting along the frontier. And they thought that this would allow them to have a lightning war and to uh, have a, a really sort of um, firm victory very early on. The problem was that the Schlieffen plan failed. And it did so for several reasons. Now, what we have is about 1.5 million German troops who advanced through Belgium, forcing French, Belgian and German troops to retreat. At first, everything was going well for them, but then things didn't go to plan. Belgian resistance is much stronger than was anticipated. Uh, and delayed German troops at the Battle of Liège, which was fought between uh, the 4th and the 16th of August 1914. Russia was ready for action much quicker, mobilised its troops much more quickly uh, than the Germans had expected, which meant that the Germans had to divert troops from the western side of, uh, of Europe over to the east, what became the Eastern Front. Um, so, Larger than expected numbers of German troops were also left behind, um, sort of holding key Belgian towns uh, such as Brussels. Uh, so they weren't able to help in this in this effort. We've then got coming across from Britain, we've got the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, which sent about 100,000 men over to help Belgium. And the Germans weren't expecting this rapid British response. So that was another thing that contributed to this failure of the Schlieffen plan. Um, British troops fought German troops at the Battle of Mons on the 23rd of August uh, 1914, and the British were forced to retreat, um, though they delayed the German troops, and the Germans apparently suffered about 5,000 uh, casualties uh, during this very ferocious fighting. Uh, another thing that happens uh, that hampers uh, the Germans is that the uh, retreating Belgian troops um, destroy tr railway track, road and bridges, which hampers the supply of food and ammunition to the Germans. Um, and German soldiers and horses were expected to march about 30 kilometres a day in order to keep up uh, with the plan. There were no armoured cars in order to 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 help with the transportation. So they were they they were exhausted and many horses died during this period. And so German German troops were also um starving 
you know, so they were forced to eat things from from the field, uh, which which wasn't wasn't particularly uh, wasn't particularly easy to do for them. So it was it was difficult for the German generals to know exactly where and what was happening to troops in the attack due to lack of proper communication and reconnaissance. So that was that was really difficult for them. So in other words, the Schlieffen plan failed. So this was the plan to come in through Belgium to encircle Paris um, and French reinforcements were gathered together and sent to the Marne. Um, and so what you have, as German troops couldn't continue to advance following the Battle of Marne, which was fought on the 5th to the 12th of September 1914, instead they retreated to higher ground. And at this point, they began to dig trenches to protect themselves from shrapnel shells um, fired from artillery. And despite um, the efforts of the French and British to dislodge German troops from their trenches, they couldn't do this. They were far too well dug in. And so what happened was then in response to this, the British and French troops themselves needed to start digging trenches. And effectively, what you have is the formation of two lines of trenches opposite each other that extended from the English Channel to the Swiss border, which became known as the Western Front. And what we have is a war of attrition. You know, hundreds of thousands, millions of soldiers fighting over metres of land up until about 1918. So it's very sort of very, very difficult. Um, now, I want to say a little bit now about the trench systems themselves and how well they were protected. The front, what you have is a series of frontline trenches where most of the sort of action is taking place. Uh, these are protect, protected by barbed wire and machine guns, so thick rolls of barbed wire. Any of you who've seen any sort of uh, World War One film or documentary will will be very familiar with that. And trenches are dug in a zigzag pattern, which minimises the damage caused by shell blasts. Um, and it also prevents people firing down the trenches. So you couldn't get a machine gunner who would sort of get into a trench and then just, just set fire uh, down the trench and kill everyone there. You've also got um, the use of sandbags, which line all the trenches line the walls in order to strengthen them. And then you've got little dugouts, little holes dug into the side of trenches that provided additional additional um, protection. Some of the German trenches are actually quite advanced at this initial, this early period, and they are reinforced with concrete and are actually very, very deep. When the, when the Allied forces discover uh, the German trenches um, for the first time, they are quite surprised by you know, the, the strength of them. Um, you've then got a series of trenches, support trenches that are positioned um, behind the front line that are used to sort of get people up to the front line, bring supplies in. And the, the, the space in between uh, the two trenches is known as no man's land. And this is a an area that no man's land, literally because nobody has, nobody has, uh, you know, has, has occupied it. Uh, it's the it's the space over which people will 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 fight. And again, if you've seen any of the brilliant films that have come out uh, in the last sort of couple of years um, since the anniversary of the 
Great War, the First World War, you'll see the the, the craters and shell holes uh, that are dotted over this, the torn trees, the, the 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 holes that are filled with mud and stagnant water. So there we go, Sam. There's a that is why uh, the trenches uh, came into being, and a little bit about you know how difficult they were to attack. And you're going to tell us a little bit about what trench warfare was like. Yeah, absolutely. Here's um, a, a little account by um, Lieutenant J.R. Ackerley, and he's writing on the 1st of July 1916 as the first day of the Battle of the Somme. He wrote this in his memoir, which was published in 1968. The air when we last went over the top in broad daylight positively hummed, buzzed and whined with what sounded like hordes of wasps and hornets, but were, of course, bullets. Many of the officers in my battalion were struck down the moment they emerged into view. My company commander was shot through the heart before he had advanced a step. So that's just a brief uh, description of the horror of what's going on there. But, you know, put yourself in in, in the shoes of this person. He's going to be uh, climbing over the top, going over those sandbags at the top of the trenches, carrying a pair of wire cutters to cut the barbed wire, which has been placed uh, in, in and around no man's land and also in defence of the German trenches, if he's lucky enough to get there. He would have taken a gas mask, at least from 1915 onwards, when they started using gas and protecting troops against it. He would have taken two hand grenades, um, some empty sandbags, 220 rounds of ammunition uh, and his trusty Lee-Enfield rifle. And they fired around 15 rounds per minute. A bayonet for close combat fighting and an entrenching tool in case they found themselves needing to suddenly dig down into, um, into, into safety. And also he would have taken some emergency rations. I think it's a very telling thing. They've taken some bully beef and some hard biscuits. And what, what that tells us is that they don't, they don't know when they're coming back. They don't know when they're going to be fed again. They don't know how long um, their duty is going to take them as soon as they climb over the top. It was very difficult to attract, attack these trenches um, it was done primarily with artillery, um, so huge, powerful guns firing over the heads of the troops to attack enemy trenches. Very, um, the key thing there was to 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 destroy the defensive and try and break down the barbed wire which protected them. But sometimes um, it didn't work. The, there was a, there was a plan for something called a creeping barrage from 1916, and the principle here is that the bombardment would happen in front of the advancing troops and that it would move forward 90 metres every three minutes. There was a very big problem with that. Essentially, it's difficult to uh, coordinate the movements of the troops and also the accuracy of of the bombardment. Um, to be able to bombard accurately, you need to have accurate maps. And uh, that was very difficult to do, to find out exactly where the enemy was at any one time. And then also to rain down an artillery bombardment in exactly where you wanted to go. The result of all of this was that not only were um, troops susceptible to being uh, shot by the enemy, but also to being killed by artillery on their own side. This idea of communication and a coordination, I think, is really important. If you think about how they were actually talking to each other, they used field telephones. They're, they're boxes, heavy wooden boxes with a contraption inside uh, of, a, of a phone. But it worked using cables. 
Um, so th there's no there's no radio. It meant that there had to be a physical cable attaching that phone uh, back to, back down to the trenches, and that obviously meant that those cables were often broken and repairing them very very difficult indeed. Of course, this means that they have to rely on other methods of communication. Um, runners, men, literally tasked with running to and fro, carrying messages, dogs, and they would have. Um, uh, attached to them around their collars, around their neck or on, on, uh, on their backs, um, uh, bags where you could place uh, you could place messages. A semaphore, which was the use of of, of big flags and pigeons, also important and also also flares. So the communication's difficult. You've got the bullets raining down. You've got shrapnel shells, which are exploding. These are shells fired from artillery, but they contain um, lots and lots of different pieces of, of lead balls or, or, or broken shrapnel, which would explode. And also you've got explosive shells themselves, which hit the ground and then they explode. Um, gas became used from um, April 1915. They first used chlorine gas that caused suffocation. Phosgene also caused suffocation. Um, used a bit later, December. Um, the year after 1917, they start using mustard gas. That's different. That causes skin burns, blisters and blindness. Um, initially, gas was, was released by canisters uh, downwind. So the wind blows the gas onto the enemy. But uh, it was from 1916 onwards that they started to put the gas in exploding shells. So there you are, a bit of a, a sense of the, of the horrors of what's going on in this trench warfare. And I think one of the most important things is the difficulty of understanding where your enemy is and then doing anything about it by actually communicating and coordinating your troops to advance in the way that you want them to. Excellent. I'm going to talk a little bit more now about what conditions were like in the trenches. We've heard there about the horrific chemical weapons that were used, but actually living day to day in the trenches themselves was really difficult to do. You imagine, you know, living in, in, in Britain as we do. I mean, many of you who are listening around the world will not be in Britain, but Britain is quite rainy. And if you've been out walking around over Christmas and New Year, you will realise how muddy everywhere gets. But imagine this a hundred times on the Western Front. Now, these trenches, they used sandbags to make them stronger. And apparently... They used 1.3 billion sandbags during the course of the First World War. Having said that, the rain still got in because the trenches were open and the trench floors would fill really quickly with rain and mud, particularly in Belgium, where the soil was mainly clay and didn't easily absorb water. So what they did in order to deal with this was that they put down things called duckboards. In other words, these were wooden planks that had been nailed together that you have at the base of the trench so that you could actually walk on them. Um, the problem was that that didn't work either and the water and the mud simply you know, came over them. And one of the things that people suffered from was a fungal foot infection, which was known as trench foot. Now imagine this, you're in these conditions, you've got your army boots on and you're unable to properly dry your feet. And what happens is quite literally your feet rot. And I remember when many, many years ago, when I was 14 years old, uh, more than 30 years ago, would you believe? And I studied the First World War. I was obsessed with it. I did all sorts of research about it. And one of the things I came across was a photograph of somebody with trench foot. And it's still 
sits with me today, that image, because it looked like somebody's toes were literally like a rotten pear. I don't know whether you've ever seen uh, pictures of trench foot, but it is it is extraordinary. The foot is swollen and blackened and and just and terrible. Um, and we've got I've got here in front of me um, a description of trench foot, trench foot by Sergeant Harry Roberts, who was a soldier with the Lancashire Fusiliers. He was interviewed after the war and he remembers if you have never had trench feet described to you, I will tell you. Your feet swell to two or three times their normal size and go completely dead. You could stick a bayonet into them and not feel a thing. If you're fortunate enough not to lose your feet and the swelling begins to go down, it is then that the intolerable, indescribable agony begins. I've heard men cry and even scream with the pain, and many of them have had to have their feet and legs amputated. So absolutely horrific um, experience of anyone. So in, in addition to the terrible um, conditions uh, that led to trench foot, people also experienced pests in the trenches, rats, flies, mosquitoes and lice. And also they were under continual fear of being shot at by an enemy sniper. So there we are, Sam. Trench Trench life wasn't particularly nice. I think we can both agree. <laughs> yes, a good conclusion. Um, let's do a little quiz to see if everyone was paying attention. Number one, what was the Schlieffen plan? Number two, why did the Schlieffen plan fail? Number three, why did the combatants decide to dig trenches? Number four, why was it so hard to fight in the trenches? Number five, what were the conditions like in the trenches? Number six, what was trench foot? <laughs> uh, and uh, James, do we have a task for them? We do. We have a lovely writing task. Now, imagine that you are either a soldier or a nurse serving on the Western Front. What we would like you to do is to write a letter home to your parents or to a loved one describing your experiences. And remember to pop in all sorts of details um, not to not to not to scare them, of course, but to to sort of get across some of the horrors of of the Western Front. Very good. Um, I hope you've enjoyed that. We're going to be coming back with more uh, more homeschooling, great fun homeschooling stuff next week. I hope you've been enjoying listening to this. Uh, do please follow me on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis, and you can follow me at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so check us out there. And you can find out all our back catalogue of homeschooling episodes and everything else that we've been up to at our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Uh, also, if you'd like to help, please do. And we're trying to do as many uh, homeschooling episodes as we can at the moment during uh, during this uh, prolonged lockdown. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. Any uh, financial assistance you can give us will go towards production costs and will allow us to produce more. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your help. Bye, guys. Take care, guys. <laughs>